and welcome to Tectonic, the podcast that revolves around the seismic shifts in technology culture and the digital age. You're listening to episode number 44. I'm your host, Joe Darnell, and with me is my good friend, Mr. Joshua Pfeiffer. How do you do, sir? Hey, man. I'm doing well. Ready to rock and roll. Yes, me too. Uh, we are. I guess I should have said that last week when we talked music, rock and roll music. <laughs> I'm ready to, I don't know, video something. Are you listening to last week's episode in your headphones right now? Because we got to get in the, you know, the game here. This is, this is a new show. Sorry. Okay, good. You got a drink? You're, you're refreshed? You're ready to start this weekend? I've got a little uh, refreshment. Me too. We'll leave it at that to, and, uh, to the audience's imagination. <laughs> we also have our special guest with us, of course, who is uh, the extraordinary DIY video guy, Mr. Caleb Wojcik. Welcome back, Caleb. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Uh, I had a good time on the show last time, so uh, excited to talk about some different stuff this time. Thank you. Thank you. It's been too long. I try to get you all of our guests back within a few months so that the audience doesn't have to be reintroduced completely to our original guests. And I kind of want this uh, this roundtable you know, with, with people we keep up with so that we learn a certain set of skills and perspectives from specialists in a variety of different fields. And you're our main go-to video guy. So it's a uh, good to time this out. And now that we have this opportunity to talk about video again, everybody can uh, catch up in what's going on on YouTube and Kickstarter these days, what you're doing with professional video equipment as an independent professional, and just see where things are at. Yeah. So where do you want to, where do you want to get started? What do you want to talk about first? Well, I guess, uh, first of all, why don't you recap 2015? What was it like for you? When we were talking before, it was only about halfway through. So 2015 was my first full year of uh, being independent, of being my own boss. I used to work for Fizzle, which is a, a website, podcast, and a membership community that teaches online business to people. And I made a lot of videos there, and I decided to leave there and to go independent and to make videos for clients and then also teach people how to make better videos at DOI Video Guy. And so 2015 was the first full year doing that. Traveled internationally for some client work all around the U.S., did a lot of stuff here in the San Diego area, and then released a couple of courses for DIY Video Guy. Hustled a lot that first year. And uh, now I have my brother-in-law working with me full-time, Tim, uh, who we were talking about pre-record on this episode about how he's uh, becoming a part of the brand as well now too. And uh, it's just been a really fun trip really to to do my own thing and considering the output you've got here with new videos uh, it seems like almost every week and your own audio podcast and then you got your client work how many hours would you say you invest into your company at this point you know being a fledgling business uh how many hours i mean i i put in good hours each week anywhere from 40 to 50 55 hours a week because sometimes we're doing shoots on weekends Sometimes I'm editing for deadlines on weekends and, and I'm an early riser. So if I get up and I start working by six and I don't finish till five or six, then, I mean, you can get to 55, 60 hour weeks pretty quickly. Yeah. And I've been doing, I mean, I've been blogging and doing online business stuff for about five years, but four or five years ago, I didn't know what I was doing and I was just writing random blog posts about personal finance. So, uh, how many hours I've put in? I don't know what the math would be. Probably three to four thousand, I would say. Mm, that's a cool number there. As a video guy in my back history, I was in the video production like you are for about eight years. I know how much work this takes, and it's good. It's good work as long as you're passionate about it and you love the opportunity to be creative in this way, then it's very re rewarding. I tell you what, though, Caleb, one of the things I'm really admiring about your videos of late is color management, just the quality of the picture, the lighting feels so natural, even on my desktop Dell external monitor, just everything looks pretty clean. So it's easy on the eyes. And that's saying a lot for video content to that you see on YouTube. They're not all that great just yet. Yeah, I think that's a combination of, I mean, tools. So better cameras have better images and I use Canon cameras right now and have been for the last few years. And they usually have pretty good color to start off with. Uh, but then also just spent a lot of time learning color science and uh, color correcting and grading and trying to 
make my videos look as good as they can and not necessarily over the top so they don't have some sort of crazy effect on them but to just have them look rich and real and clear and so just been spending a lot of time in that aspect of making videos what part of the process do you enjoy the most i'm just curious before we really get into your interesting most recent project what do you prefer to do do you feel like pre-production is what you really enjoy doing the planning and the process of storyboarding and writing and uh, coming up with the story for the productions are you more the director during the principal photography that's a really interesting question and it's something that i think about a lot because as you progress in a video career if you want to go on to do bigger projects bigger bigger budget things you start getting siloed into roles because there's more people that need to be there and right. that's why there's so many people in the credits and there's assistant key grips of people that hold microphones and move lights around so i think the most interesting thing for me is actually operating the camera and getting the look of whatever i'm doing down and so i kind of fuss about that stuff when we're filming um and that's the kind of thing that i maybe micromanage a little bit too much or uh, critique or really focus on before hitting record uh, but I think that that... It's probably paying off because you don't have as much editing to do later. Yeah, I think that's one of the most important things you could do. And it's the same thing with any kind of editing, photo, audio, video, anything of that sort. The better the original product, the the easier it is to edit and the less editing you have to do. And you can't really fix a lot of things in post. So that's what I would say is my favorite part. And when I watch a movie or a television show that's the kind of thing i'm kind of analyzing is how they're framing and lighting and doing all that kind of stuff hmm. yeah I, de I definitely started uh, uh looking at that after our last interview uh every show i'm watching i'm looking for the the lights and where the lights are shooting their faces and all of that so you've kind of ruined tv for me now i'm just you know <laughs> yeah that, that tends to happen <laughs> yeah I, i'll like pause something we're watching and i'll be like do you see how his face is perfectly lit and then her face is perfectly lit? That's not possible. It's not physically possible. They're facing each other and they're both like perfectly lit with a hair light and they're in a room with huge windows. And yeah, it kind of ruins it a little bit, but in a way it also lets you appreciate it more. So we went and saw The Revenant this week and that's a heck of an accomplishment technically filmmaking wise. Mm. And I think I maybe appreciate it a little bit more than the average person would because I know what went into getting some of these really long shots and stuff. Uh, and the the director and the the DP who also did like Birdman and Gravity. Oh, okay. His really long takes. Uh, he's he's probably going to win uh, best director or best DP again uh, because of how technically complex it is to do these things so that's yeah like you're saying that's the kind of stuff i nerd out about so that's probably my favorite part hmm. well then we, what you did most recently i keep referring to is something that really caught my attention which was this uh, very successful kickstarter campaign you want to tell us a little bit about that campaign and what went into it and just like how it turned out yeah so i've been friends with john lee dumas of uh entrepreneur on fire uh since since he kind of started that podcast a couple of years ago, and uh, he also lives in San Diego, so we see each other occasionally. We've had a little mastermind group that's met a few times as well, and uh, I was a very, very early guest in that podcast, which now has, I think, over a thousand episodes. But he wanted to launch a book that is called The Freedom Journal, and it's a journal that you use for 100 days to get to one specific thing you want to accomplish. And he wanted to use Kickstarter as the marketing platform to launch the book instead of, you know, launching it traditionally because it's not, it's not a novel. It's not like a business book. It's a, it's a journal. So he'd have to do something marketing wise to get people to pay attention. And so he, he talked to me about what it was and some ideas for working together on the Kickstarter video and some of the photos and some of the animated GIFs that would go on the Kickstarter page. And I'd done other launch videos before for, for books or for courses and things, but nothing uh, 
as specific as a Kickstarter video and how you need to fit a lot of information into those few minutes to yes. convince people to to back the project. So this video was something we've spent the most amount of pre-production time on because unlike other Kickstarter videos that maybe have the luxury of uh, an object that you use, so I'm thinking of uh, any of the, the iPhone accessories or that cooler that had speakers in it that was really popular or uh, uh, like video games or other things that you could show a lot of stuff of. This was, it was a book. It was a journal that you went step by step through. So other than holding up the book and we did do some shots of the book or like flipping through the pages, it's not really going to convince someone to back it at a lower level, let alone a high level. So we had to make the book a little bit more tangible and we did that by planning out specific shots that would kind of help people envision what they could do with the book so we used things in the in the business side of the spectrum as well as the health and fitness and travel and tried to make this book or what you could do with the book a little bit more tangible and so that was the biggest aspect of it uh, that took a lot of time and effort and then it's the campaign's not quite done yet, but I think it's over three hundred and fifty thousand, which I'm not equating to the video entirely or even like ten percent. I know a lot of effort went into it on John's team, but it's pretty cool to be a part of a Kickstarter campaign that has thousands of backers and hundreds of thousands of dollars generated. Yes, it's a really solid production. The quality of the Kickstarter page, the information laid out, it's its really uh, motivating, inspiring. And you don't see a lot of journals like this. I think this is reaching an audience that is looking for something of this quality. And it reminds me of many uh, another really interesting productivity personal management book, except this one seems to have it all collected. Like this is really attune to the intended you know journalists and I, th I think it's spot on i think that the john really communicated effectively with his audience so i think that you got to give yourself some credit because your audience can appreciate a video like this that you know this is proof that not everybody who is quote unquote a visual learner cannot appreciate writing and vice versa we actually learn from all the mediums. We learn from what we, we read and what we can write to and from what we get to see and what we hear. Like we all benefit from all the mediums and all the forms of communication. And this is a proof of that where a lot of fantastic communication mediums are pulled together. Now, have you any familiarity with the behind the scenes for John's podcast? Have you done any work with him on that before? No, I haven't done any behind the scenes work. Interesting. Okay. Because I noticed in the shots that you recorded in the in his um, his living room space, it looked like he has his own computer set up in the background with his podcasting microphone and where he does his own recordings. Yeah, because we filmed that in his home office that he uses. And so, I mean, I'd, I'd been to his place before uh, here in San Diego, and I kind of had an idea for the setup that I wanted so that his brand would be part of it. You know, that that desk and his his podcasting microphone and EO fire flag on it and things like that. Um, so I knew I wanted to shoot in that environment. But yeah, I hadn't worked on a video for John before that. Now, how much of troubleshooting do you encounter when you're recording in an environment like that where the lighting is changing outdoors? And, and how did shooting go for such a project like this? Like, the reason I ask this question is because I can tell when a video is really well made or when a, a graphic design is really well made that as a professional, I cannot see where the producer was struggling to make something work. It looks seamless that you don't identify something approaching a shortcoming in the video quality. And when I see this video, I'm thinking, well, the lighting could have been a problem here or the echo in the room and the reverb, but then just, to hear the quality, to see the video quality, it just comes together in a seamless experience. I don't think that there were that many major issues in production 
for for this project and i think it just comes from experience of us having issues in other previous projects <laughs> and so yes we did use some natural light in the shot he has a big uh, sliding glass door uh, that's kind of off to the right if you're looking at him in the video uh, and we actually did use that kind of as a side catch light to give his face some definition so it wasn't just completely flat and we used, if you look in the behind the scenes video, you can see that we used one of our reflectors to kind of soften it a little bit, but that's something I'm really paying attention to uh, when I use natural light, because if it's a cloudy day at all, that can change throughout the day and it wasn't cloudy that day. And so we were able to use that kind of light, but if it was cloudy and the sun was going to be going behind the clouds and then coming back out again, I would have probably completely closed the blinds and not allowed any natural light to be part of it. Um, mm. I don't think there were many other hiccups. It was in a large room, but we used uh, the Rode NTG3 shotgun microphone, which is pretty pretty dynamic. Uh, it's not quite as dynamic as like a podcasting microphone, but it's pretty good at picking up just what's around it and limiting the echo a little bit. Uh, I don't think... Maybe on some of the B-roll shots, we had to... Uh, shoot them a few times um, I know that all the shots in there we we shot ourselves so we didn't take b-roll shots from anything uh, and there's the little montage of like typing at a keyboard and then being on a bicycle and then like my wife is rolling out some dough in the kitchen and those kinds of shots we had to shoot a few times to get them so that they all lined up perfectly uh, so the hands were facing the same direction with the same framing and similar lighting. And so it, it came down to spending a lot of time in pre-production, knowing the shots and just being prepared when we were ready to shoot them. On your own website, you did a behind the scenes video and that really sheds light onto the project. I just, it is something that you don't often get with a Kickstarter campaign is how did you produce the Kickstarter campaign itself? This is, this is amazing. This is a feat. And a lot of Kickstarter campaigns don't have this attention to detail, this level of quality. And like you've said so much, you spent a lot of time thinking about pre-planning and processes, writing, and attention to detail on the days of shoots. So I got to wonder, well, how do you prefer to write your scripts? What do you use for writing scripts like you did in this case? So John had written up a first draft in Google Drive, and we ran from ran with it from there. Uh, that's typically what I'll use with a client because I can go back and look at revisions and we can collaborate on a phone call together if need be. Uh, internally, we use Byword for all of our text editing needs and then just sync that over Dropbox for everything. We put titles and show notes in Markdown in there and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so those are the two main tools that I use for for script writing. I don't use an actual scripting program like a like a television show might use because don't usually have more than one person honestly and so we don't really need to have call outs for different people and then we tied the script once the script was final to the b-roll and storyboards just by writing it underneath the, the the photos or images that we drew for all the different shots we wanted we have this one thing in common we i, I was using byword as well back in the day for video scripts and what have you it really works because if I was away from my desk, I would do some writing mobily on my phone. Do you write on mobile devices or prefer to zero in on these things and focus on them at a computer desk? You know, part of the reason we use Byword is because I can get to it on my phone or on an iPad if I'm out and about and I have an idea for something. Or uh, if I'm recording a podcast, I can type onto my phone and type out show notes while I'm interviewing somebody, for example. And I don't hear the click of my keyboard or me writing and like shuffling paper. So I kind of picked it up that way. And it's just nice to have everything in Dropbox always synced on all my devices. And with Tim and I working on multiple computers, we just prefer to have everything in plain text that way. Okay, so another thing you did before shooting the video, I, I would take it because it was storyboarding. Y'all storyboard this video and y'all used Paper 53, which is a fairly well-known sketching app, a notebooks like sketching doodling app on iPhones and iPads. I believe it's on an iPhone. Never used it there. I've used it on iPads before. 
So why did y'all choose Paper 53? And do you see using it again in the future? Is it your go-to when you have the need to do all of your storyboarding? I don't know if I would recommend Paper 53 or if I would use it again. It was honestly just kind of a test for me. And we sat down in our living room of our workspace and I shared it to the Apple TV. So it was on the TV and I was kind of drawing on the iPad so Tim could see uh, what my ideas were. Oh, okay. I don't know. Honestly, it might have been a little bit faster if we just used pieces of paper. <laughs> but I also was doing some stuff in the design that you might see in the uh, behind the scenes video of actual colors and getting shapes and framing. And I was being really specific on the storyboards. And I, I just don't know if a stylus and, and a tablet is the best way. I would say whatever is your most preferred way to draw would be would be the best way. And if I was going forward, maybe I would just use pen and paper. But I also wanted a kind of slick way to to show it to John in person. And I think he liked seeing it in that format. So mm. it's kind of something I tried. Maybe I'll do that again if we do storyboards. But it might just be a little bit too clunky and might take a little bit extra time. But I felt like I could make a better looking thing in that than I could on paper. And so that was my main reason for doing so, to show it to John. If I was just doing something internally and storyboarding it, we've done it before where we just take a bunch of eight and a half by 11 paper, cut it in half, hamburger style, not hot dog style, and right. and then just storyboard that way with stick figures because we don't really care what it looks like. Okay. Well, with an informational video like this, I think a lot of people may not even understand why you would storyboard in the first place. So what's the idea behind this, the, the process that it lends itself in? How does it creatively influence an informational video? Well, when you are spending more time on a video, when there's a bigger budget and you have, uh, when there's kind of more at stake and you have a very specific style you want the video to have or you have specific shots in mind and you're working with other people, the best way to show them that without actually filming it is to storyboard it and to draw it out. And so when I'm making YouTube videos about gear and equipment, we will just list out the shots that we need. We won't necessarily storyboard them. We'll just say medium shot of the tripod panning to the right with the camera on it or a close-up of this button and then point to it with your finger. Like we'll just write stuff out and then, you know, you just wing it for framing and movement and things like that. But when you have a video that has a script needs to be a certain length and you have a lot of detailed kind of shots you want in it. The only way to start to have that conversation with the people you work with on your team or with whoever you're working with client wise is to show them a storyboard. And so another project I just recently did with uh, Pat Flynn of smart passive income is this little teaser trailer for his book. Will it fly? And it's a very, uh, movement heavy shot where we had someone operating a camera with a gimbal and following his son running down some stairs and coming to his door and knocking on the door and i could only portray that video to him by storyboarding it and showing him kind of visually what it would look like or i would have to you know film it on my phone and and then show him that you know there's only a few ways you can explain something visually I was just looking for the video that you produced for Pat. Is it up on the website yet? It will be up on his YouTube channel. I'll add that to the show notes later in uh, post. Then, okay, well, then another thing I was curious about, when you cobble all of your video footage together, you have your B-roll footage where you're illustrating concepts that are described while John is narrating over top. He's got a voiceover, and he, sometimes you see him. You've ever interwoven these bits that you wanted based on your storyboards, how do you know when you've got the right take? How do you know when you've found the right pace and that this is this is the look and feel that you want for this video? I, I noticed this consistency across most of your videos where you sometimes experiment, but usually you have a style already expressed through all of your videos and, and also in this one. So I was wondering, is there sort of a, a Caleb logic finessing that you, you just know with your gut? How do you know when you've hit the mark? I think it's something along those lines, yeah, where I have to 
watch it a bunch of times and make everything have a really good cadence and rhythm to it where there's not extra frames where things kind of linger for too long after someone finishes finishes a sentence or they don't come on screen too early so you're kind of just like looking at them before they're about to talk and i am very specific about things coming on screen when you say them so everything visually should support the audio and vice versa so when i say a specific thing about a feature of a camera that i'm doing a review of that's when that thing comes on screen and i try to have this really quick cadence throughout my videos and i'm sure it comes from all the different sources that i've been consuming over the past few years not only people that i've learned from so tutorials and workshops and things but just watching youtubers watching television watching other things that's where i get my style from it's portions of all of those places and i couldn't really pinpoint all of them but there's probably certain things where i could say oh i I got that from this person or oh i do that because of this youtube channel so Mm. kind of a mix of all those things it makes a great video for just any kind of medium i can see this being very accessible to new audiences for amateurs and professionals so it's not something that's too flashy which i really appreciate that the quality is is there you keep our attention without super sensationalizing everything i think under a lot of pressure from many clients you not necessarily caleb wajik but some other video professional would wind up trying to assume the voice and the personality of the marketer and feel compelled to represent the video in a very flashy way and it doesn't seem like you're trying to conform your standard to somebody else's uh, expectations but really, this is this is the Caleb Wojcik way, and that's a that's really powerful. It's really clear through the the video content. I like it. So along that line, then originally y'all had thought that this would video would come out to like five to six minutes, and you mentioned this in your making of behind the scenes video, but that in post production y'all looked at what you had, and then John would rather have the first introductory video shorter down to three minutes long and then show the other video as secondary additional material should the people looking over the quick kickstarter campaign be compelled to check those out why did you choose to go this direction with the format was it a concern that five to six minutes was too long for the introduction yeah i think it mainly came from john talking with other kickstarter experts and people that had been more experienced and done more campaigns and their recommendation was to to shorten it to keep it short and sweet and to let people get through the full video most of the time and then make a decision versus if you have to make the decision to stop a video because it's going too long that's kind of a negative decision and then it's like well this video is i got bored it was too long now am i going to back this thing versus having a good experience and having the video finish and then thinking about what you're going to do. So that was that was the main reason was having other people that he trusted look at it and get get feedback and a lot of the things that we had in the video in the longer script maybe got to be a little redundant or there were things where they really just made sense if they were separate and they were either further down the page or he used them in other marketing ways so emailing his list and saying this is also something we're going to be doing where building schools with pencils of promise was one example that was in the full version originally so i think it was a combination of getting other people's advice and feedback and then us just being open to okay that's fine let's let's make a a, a different revision and this happens on sales pages and sales videos all the time is you have this huge over overarching thing you want to write out or script or shoot and then you're like actually this would we could just do it in like half the time and it would be just as good and it would be more concise for people interesting then my last question pertaining to the kickstarter video unless there's something else that you'd like to add was just an in general observation of the entire project i noticed that you and tim are both sharing many responsibilities you'll have many hats behind the scenes to make this video happen so do you feel like 
this is a good thing. You're being a generalist right now in this uh, time with your business. It's a good thing, as far as I can tell, where you are responsible for the pre-production aspects, for writing, for camera work, for storyboarding. You become the jack of all trades for the project. And you see yourself working yourself out of that position as you grow the company and you produce bigger product, you know, videos. Do you think you'll take more of the director role or the business manager? What are, what are your thoughts for the future of these kinds of projects as the company grows? Well, I think it comes out of necessity when there's only a company of one or two people that you have, to, you have to do everything. And only as you grow financially and team size wise, can you really afford to silo down into different, uh, into different aspects. And I still like learning about all the different aspects and I still enjoy doing all of them, but out of a necessity, there are certain roles that I have to hand off to people or I have to do myself. And that comes in the financial part of the business and dealing with contracts and accounting and billing and things, as well as in the production side of things. So I'm getting, as, as we grow this business, if it grows into a 10 or 15 person company, yeah, I will, I will get siloed into, into something. I'll become more of a director and manager and make sure everyone's happy and HR, but I still think that I can have as much creative input and voice as possible. And part of my job would become teaching people that are on the team what what my voice is and what I like and what I don't like and what our style is as a company. And so, I mean, those are kinds of things that just happen as you, as you grow. And I'm sure that as as the company grows, if we choose to grow it team member-wise, that's what will happen. Well, if you haven't already checked out the Kickstarter video, I recommend you pause the podcast now and you go look it up. It's going to be linked in the show notes. It's only going to take you three minutes after all, right? It's already uh, going to swallow up this podcast. Sorry about that, but this is a this is a podcast, so we're assuming you're going to listen to this in the car or while you're at the gym. We don't mind taking a little bit more of your time. <laughs> it's a conversation, right? But uh, speaking of which... Uh, Caleb, you do have your own podcast, and I didn't intend to mention this, but you want to mention that and tell people where to find it, because if you're listening to this show and you enjoy the conversation as it is right now, I'm sure you'll get a lot out of Caleb's regular podcast. So Caleb, you want to tell people a little bit about what you do on your show? Yeah, it's actually interesting because I got a lot of feedback when I was diving into DIY video guy and teaching video online. And they're like, you're going to have an audio podcast about video. How are you going to do that? <laughs> and so we've honestly, we've struggled a little bit and how, what's the best format and what should we talk about? So we have a lot of different kinds of episodes. Uh, you can search DIY video guy on, uh, on iTunes or on Stitcher or SoundCloud and you can find it there. But we have episodes where I interview YouTubers and filmmakers. We have some, kind of buddy co-host style episodes with me and Tim where we talk through what it's like to uh, run a, a video production business with clients and some of our ideas for how you can find clients and work well with them. And some of my episodes are solo episodes where I'm teaching technical things about using a camera or they're more strategy or aspirational kind of episodes so yeah if you're if you're into videos if you make youtube videos or you're you're a filmmaker or aspiring person that just wants to use their camera better uh when they're filming their family uh, i think you'll get something out of that podcast excellent and related to this you have your updated video course i don't remember the original one but tell us a little bit more about the video course yeah so right now we have version 2.0 of our video production course out uh, at DIYvideoguide.com. And that covers everything from turning on your camera to putting your uh, memory card into your computer. So anything involved in the pre-production and production part of making a video, not necessarily going into the editing piece, but cameras and audio and lighting and which equipment you should get, how you use it, as well as... Uh, being better on camera, whether you should use a teleprompter or not, uh, really dialing in lighting and sound and uh, all that, all that kind of stuff. So 
there was version 1.0 that had uh, about five or six hours of stuff in it and uh, about 25 videos. And we just updated it uh, earlier in 2015 with 50 more videos for another four hours of uh, training in there. So there's a lot of stuff in there. And what I tell people is you could shadow me for a day or you could take that course and you would probably get way more out of the course, honestly, because I cover so much more in that than you would if you were just on set with me while I was filming all day. Yeah, I, I really uh, look forward to checking those guides out with my uh, kids. I've got a, uh, well, I've got a bunch of kids, but recently the uh, the 10 year old just got a an iPad mini four, I guess. And, uh, you know, we downloaded iMovie and I just, I said, hey, you know, hey, check it out. You can want, you can play movie or you can make movies. And she ran off with, with her siblings and came back in like two hours with like a full, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Tangled. It's, I don't know, you don't know if you have kids, mm -hmm. but, uh, the, uh, the uh, Rapunzel thing. So they redid the whole Rapunzel intro theme, <laughs> they were shooting with their, with their siblings and playing the music in the background <laughs> and all the rest. And it was, I mean, we, we put it up on the big screen, Apple TV, we were like the whole family was cracking up and this was like two hours after she was introduced to iMovie for the first time. So, uh, yeah, like two weeks later she comes back and she's like, I've, I've, I figured this all out. I don't know what else to do with this thing. I've, I've done it all. I've, I've conquered this app. So, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's interesting how some people are just, uh, aren't just drawn to this sort of creative work. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, continuing to, to show her, uh, informative stuff like your material as well as uh i guess getting her some more complicated applications than iMovie <laughs> yeah i started on like the very first imax uh, our high school had some and i made some random video in my film studies class when i was like a junior or senior in high school and uh it it was complicated back then and now yeah you can shoot on your phone and edit it on your phone and upload it directly to youtube immediately and like youtube wasn't even around back then so it's crazy the kind of tools that are available to people now to make videos by themselves and that's why i'm such a big advocate for teaching what i've what i've learned about this stuff do you think that the people that are using their video cameras is directly proportional to the number of people with good video cameras these days it seems like as these tools become more readily available that not necessarily more people are using them. Let's say that there was only two or 3% of the population that was buying video camcorders and actually putting them to good use in the nineties. Well, flash forward to today and everyone's got a video camcorder, well, video camera on their phones, which takes much better video and it's easier. It's more accessible than what our parents had when we were growing up. Does it seem like, it follows suit that as the technology becomes readily available, people are more interested in these things. I remember watching making of videos with Peter Jackson and Steven Spielberg, how they relished their childhood where they were making videos in the backyard and they were doing it the hard way with old school equipment. And it was painful for them to use it, but they were so enthusiastic about what they had at their disposal and they made great use of everything. You know, they, they got over the technical hurdles because they were just so passionate about making film. And so now with technology more readily available, do you, do you notice, you know, as you're observing people with their technology and how they use their cameras, any sort of fluctuation or change where kids today are saying, Hey mom, and dad, let me grab your camera and let me go out and shoot something with the dog. You know, do you see that sort of thing? I think that nowadays, kids just use their phones and so they don't really they don't really need the, like the permission to to go use their parents cameras or whatever that maybe you had to in the past and also, also yeah, i'm still yeah. not adjusted to the idea that children have phones <laughs> yeah yeah me me neither i mean and phones that shoot 4k video and you can edit on and all that kind of stuff so i think it's a combination of there are there's more interest in it because of the internet and being able to publish videos and having other people see them. And so people think, Oh, I can gain an audience and make a living doing this perhaps. So I think people are more driven to make videos for that reason. But I also think that there's just, it's just cheaper to do it now. And the tools are more accessible with free software like iMovie or using 
equipment you already have, like your phone, and it's just way more accessible than it used to be where you would shoot something on a VHS tape or a mini DV little tape. And then to get that on a computer, you had to have the right cable and all that kind of stuff. And so it was just, it was just much harder back then. And so that's why all the home videos of my, my dad and my wife's dad, they're just in full, like not edited. Whereas, you know, nowadays people have the the ability to edit things on their phone and, and publish them in minutes. And so I think there's probably more people recording and there's also more people editing and actually making completed pieces out of them. And boy, those old VHSs sure were difficult to watch. <laughs> I just had to go through a bunch of old VHS uh, home videos from the 80s and yeah, they just set it up on a tripod and, <laughs> and went, went, you know, let it go for an hour. It's just, it's terrible. <laughs> no one realized what they were getting into. We didn't have YouTube as a reference <laughs> just yet. And we've learned a lot actually over the last 10, 20 years where it seems like more and more amateurs have a better appreciation for the basics, you know, the rule of thirds and some general idea of what halfway decent lighting looks like. And where to situate people's heads so that they're not on the center of the screen and just chopping off all of their bodies. You know, the people in general that I see just, I mean, sure, there's a lot of people still taking bad video, but it's, it's like more people are becoming subconsciously aware of things that look more appropriate to put up on a public space like YouTube. And if they expect to get anything in the way of like hits and traffic. So in the last uh, few minutes, Caleb, I wanted to ask you something that's related to this. It goes back to headphones. Uh, you have a lot of videos on your own website where you review a couple of products, things that you've used, and make recommendations to people, whether they're making videos or they're working on their audio. And something that I've experimented a lot with in the last six months are different kinds of headphones for editing the podcasts that I have, uh, what I want to use at the desk, what I want to use in the way of Bluetooth headphones, when I'm listening to podcasts as I, you know, just do chores around the house and exercise. So I was wondering, do you use the same headphones for your casual listening as well as your professional work? I have so many pairs of headphones. It's kind of funny. And every year I want like a different pair for a different reason, but I don't use most of the time. I don't use professional monitor headphones for my everyday like relaxing kind of use. Now, if I'm if I'm traveling and, and space is an issue and I have to do something where I'm professionally recording something, I will probably only pack uh, my Sony MDR7506 monitor headphones oh, yeah. and, and take those. Um, but I also will take a, a pair of earbuds. Uh, I'd have to look up the name of them. It's like Edonomic. I don't know. I'll, I'll look up the name of them but they're like deep in-ear headphones uh, that I use for, for personal use. But then I have a pair of Bose Triport, uh, more comfortable headphones that have a little bit better of a bass response that I've had for, I don't know, six or seven years, and I keep buying new ear pads for like 10 bucks for them. Yeah. Um, and I think that there is a lot of marketing and noise behind headphones, but if you pick up a pair of headphones from like the 70s or 80s, if, you're, if your dad was into to music back then, those mm -hmm. headphones are still going to sound good. It's still the same audio jack unless Apple makes the iPhone 7 not have one. It's still the same <laughs> headphone interface, headphones, speakers, things like that haven't really advanced as much as like cameras, let's say. You know, microphones and audio like it's getting higher fidelity and stuff like that, but the actual speakers and headphones haven't really changed that much. So what I find interesting is that professional monitoring headphones, like these Sonys I just mentioned, or like Audio-Technica's in the M30 or M60 or M50 area, those are like 100 to $150. And you will see them at, at concerts. You'll see them with artists rec recording in studios wearing them on set of television or movies. And then you have two or $300 headphones from 
Bose or Beats or whoever that are consumer level. And so you have these consumer level headphones that are more expensive than professional level headphones. And yeah, there's the audiophile super, super high end. Like I think there's a pair of like $50,000 headphones they showed at CES this year that a bunch of people made videos about. But honestly, you can use, you know, reasonably priced headphones. I know you have some thoughts on this you were sharing with me earlier too. Well, yeah, there's a lot of confusion around this, I think, because when people hear that there's a review out there about headphones, they they look it up, they go to Google, they're like, what are the best headphones today? You know, I just lost my pair at the gym or something. They want to find what's the best pair of headphones today. And there's all this ambiguous discussion around this because there are two categories. There are the monitoring headphones where professionals want these for the purpose of their work and their job. And like you've already described, you would typically stick to the monitoring headphones for your work. But then you have the other, uh, I guess, relaxed, casual use headphones for your leisure and entertainment. And I don't think a lot of people realize this. Yeah, you could use a one set of headphones for all the different times and situations. So why are we not really describing this for everyday users, explaining where we're coming from? When do you go from the point of, someone who just appreciates a good sounding set of headphones to being an audiophile, you know, when do you go from being a consumer to a prosumer and why are you even making that jump? Is it because the Wirecutter reviewed a hundred different sets of headphones and they determined that this one here was the best before you even, you know, tried them and heard them for yourselves. Did you just go out and buy it, you know, then get it and say, I'll accept what I get because the Wirecutter said so that, that these are the greatest. So I, I personally have experimented with many different types. I don't, even some of the headphones that I don't think are the best, I still enjoy because they're physically comfortable on my head for hours on end. So I've had headphones that are professional, they're great, and I use all the time for my productions, but I wouldn't want to wear them all the day long because they hurt my head a little bit. They're a little bit, they just kind of squeeze the ears or they, they're uncomfortable as they, they wrap around my head and kind of uh, give me a headache after a few hours. But then again, the other headphones that are more comfortable, sometimes they, they just don't produce the best sound. So I was wondering, where do you think consumers ought to be looking for their headsets and video professionals, where should they look for theirs? I think that you should really value the comfort on your headphones, because if they're not comfortable, you will not wear them. My wife won't wear my Edematic HF5 in-ear headphones that I use uh, that I got a couple years ago, but I love those things. They're not noise-canceling, but they block out a ton of sound, so I actually wear those on planes, which I know a lot of people have their big noise-canceling Bose headphones or whatever, and I just wear these in-ear headphones and I get just as good sound out of them, but my wife will not wear them because they are not comfortable to her, so her headphones that she wears are comfortable to her. And so I think comfort is a really big thing. And then if you're doing professional work, just be aware of if you're wearing bows or beats or something else that has a different bass added frequency response, just know that when you're editing so you can switch over to something that doesn't have that kind of effect. So you don't think that your audio already has a bunch of bass in it and then you go try to remove it and it's not really there anyway so just kind of be aware of what your headphones do if you're doing professional work with them and if you're not doing professional work pick what's comfortable and what you think sounds the best go to a best buy or an apple store and try on a bunch of them Hmm. last question pertaining to those there has been one suggestion thrown out there by other podcasters that since the listeners are going to be hearing their podcasts normally on some sort of random set of earbuds in earbuds or Apple's ear pods, that maybe you should edit your shows with those earbuds because you would have a representation of what your audience is going to hear. Do you have any thoughts about that? Do you see the benefit in this or is it really just a technical misconception? Yeah, I will. I mean, I will occasionally listen to my podcast in a car with Apple earbuds, with my monitor headphones, um, just to get a different flavor of what the thing sounds like. I know when I listen to my podcast in the car, and if anybody's listening to this episode in the car, 
my voice's register is very low and it makes it hard to hear in a car when you have the sound of a car and street noise and everything. So at least be aware of those things. And if you can impact your editing to change them at all, just be aware of that. But if I have a really complex audio mix on a certain video I'm making, I will export it and upload it somewhere so that I can listen to it on just my phone speakers, on an iPad, on my TV, in a bunch of different ways. Because when I listen to it on my monitor headphones or my monitor speakers, it's going to sound good. But then I go and play it through my Thunderbolt display or through my phone and I can't even hear the person talking because the music's too loud. <laughs> so you have to just be aware of that and sometimes try different devices. Awesome. All right. Anything else, guys? I think that'll wrap it up for this episode. No, I think that's it. Sounds good. Thank you very much, Caleb. Where would you like people to find your your materials online and catch up with you if they have questions about video? Well, my last name's hard to spell, so just go to DIYvideoguy.com and you'll find everything there. Excellent. Okay. So this is going to be the end of episode 44. We're so glad that you could join us. If you don't already have the show notes for this, then you will find them at tectonic.fm slash 44. And if you're looking for us on Twitter, our guest, Caleb, is at Caleb Wojcik. And yeah, the tricky part is his last name, W-O-J-C-I-K. I'm underscore Joe Darnell, and my co-host is Joshua Pfeiffer on Twitter. That's P-E-I-F-F-E-R, his last name. And the show is Tectonic FM. If you would like to send us a private message, then email should go to hello at tectonic.fm. And if you want to do us a huge favor, then check out the show on iTunes and leave us a review. I'm Joe Darnell. Thanks a bunch for listening to the Tectonic Podcast. 